0: Likely, if you have heard this person, this next person we'll be interviewing and talking with, um, you'll understand um, how lucky we are. I'm going to be introducing you here in a moment to Noelle Elrsning, Associate Executive Director, Advocacy of Governance at AASA, the School Superintendent Association. Now, Noelle joined AASA in 2007 as a policy analyst. Her associate executive director, she directs the advocacy and governance efforts of AASA. In this role, she spearheads the organization's work with Congress and the U.S. Department of Education. Her team is responsible for representing the voice and priorities of the nation's public school superintendents in all aspects of federal education policy, and uses member networks, outreach, policy analysis and surveys, and research to advance their work. She is responsible for the organization's governance work, including direct support and management of the executive committee and governing board, as well as the 49 chartered state affiliates. How have you been? I mean, you know, you're, you're, you're a mother. How are things in the home front? I follow you, but um, maybe just tell our audience, how have you been?
1: I've been doing really well. I mean, we have to, I mean, in general, but especially in the context of COVID, my husband's in the hospitality industry, so that's a little bit different because he feels responsible for the staff in his restaurants. He's an area director for Shake Shack. So that has always required an on-site presence for him at multiple locations. I've been able to work at home. AASA is a great employer with really good flexibility that way to minimize our risk. And our son is 18 months old and in a home-based daycare, but we've had great luck with the providers adherence to guidelines and practices and we are just thankful for how we've been able to endure and my broader family as well. So grateful and appreciative for sure.
0: And in, in well, number one, I have been able to follow you and I really like the post that you give about your family. And uh, you know, it's it's tricky, you know, sometimes being locked in. So I'm I'm grateful to know that you're doing well and I guess what a year it's been, right? So how how would you characterize the impact that everything we've been through thus far, right? COVID, the political turmoil has had on leaders and lawmakers.
1: That's a great question. I think something that it's crystallized for me is how some of these politicians, all of them are good at, I I see the two roles. They are politicians and they are also elected leaders, right? And so they are both good at their job And they're good at their game. And sometimes that's the same thing. And sometimes those are two very different interests. And something that's really grinding my gears this week, well, the last three weeks, well, the last five months, really, is this narrative that schools don't need any more funding. And in the particular round of conversations, that's particularly frustrating because it's this idea of you don't need more funding because the school districts are spending at such a slow rate. And that seems to imply that y'all are sitting on a pile of cash. you're rife with funds, and it completely glosses over the realities of school district budgets and the fact that legally you have multiple years to spend these dollars down. But as I've thought through it, what it really crystallizes for me is how for some members of Congress on, on one side of the aisle, it allows them to talk about how schools don't need more funding, advance a package where there's not funding for schools, vote against a package where there's not funding for schools, but no, because the Democrats will vote for it. Their schools will still get funding, and I think that's just a lack of accountability. I think it's a little hypocritical. It's a little bit of partisan posturing. Uh, and if you're if you're a superintendent and your school boards and your schools are telling you that they need funding, last time I checked in an elected democracy, you should be hearing from the people who run those schools and systems. And it's one thing for you to say that you don't want to vote for federal funding. It's another thing for you to say that schools don't need funding. Uh, my default, even accounting for my huge career bias, would be to Default to state and local education leaders in terms of what schools actually need. And that answers the question you asked about how would I characterize the impact of everything we've been through. I think it's exacerbated both the best and the worst, right? It exacerbated the amazing leadership. Leaders will lead, and particularly for superintendents and the complete abdication of leadership uh, in, for federal response to COVID in schools superintendents had to answer a lot of questions that absolutely should have been addressed at the federal and state level. And those questions rolled downhill and superintendents answered them to the best of their ability and, and did the work that they're going to do. But I think it's also exacerbated partisan politics and it's a little bit better after the 2020 elections and we'll just see how this stuff shakes out.
0: So that, that was something I've I've always really valued about you, Noelle, is that um, you would, say it exactly as I needed to hear it. So you're, you're always very focused and you're very, very honest. Um, so let me ask this, so pivot is this overused word. I, unfortunately, I use it all the time in our work, but maybe you could talk to us about the DC pivot, right? What should we know about or what should we expect in the future? Um, you know, w- what's coming in terms of you know, maybe some of the shifts that we should be aware of? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so I appreciate that you think pivot is overused. I think the really overused word is unprecedented, Uh, but we have an unprecedented opportunity to pivot. And I think if you want to watch the pivot that's coming in D.C., it's this term reconciliation. It's a term you should be hearing right now. It's a technical term related to a federal budget process. You issue a set of reconciliation instructions, Congress does as part of the budget process to achieve a policy that has fiscal impact. So that could either be generating revenues or expending revenues. So either creating a revenue flow or spending those dollars. And in this instance, the current set of reconciliation instructions is what the house and Senate is using to fund and provide a path, the legislative path for the COVID six package, which closely mirrors the American rescue plan introduced by president Biden. And The pivot that you should watch is historically reconciliation has had bipartisan support. Uh, It'll be hyperpartisan right now. And there's two reasons I would flag that for you. But before I get into those reasons, I think it's really important to understand not only what reconciliation is, but to have a familiarity with it. Because while reconciliation instructions can only be issued once per fiscal year, President Biden will have three shots at it in his first two-year terms, first two, two years of his term for the following reason. Federal fiscal year 21 started in October under President Trump, but he did not use reconciliation instructions, so they still remain available. So President Biden is using reconciliation to achieve COVID-6. He will still have reconciliation instructions for FY22. Those are the federal dollars that will be in schools for the 22-23 school year. Uh, That budget process starts this month. And that federal fiscal year starts this coming October, and he could move another set of Democratic priorities via reconciliation. And he will have a third shot before his midterm election in February, March of 2022, when we start the FY23 conversations. Why is this relevant? It's probably how the Democrats are most likely going to get their biggest priorities done, because- While the House can move very partisan legislation all day long, the Senate by structure is designed to be more bipartisan, but also so it has a rule that bills have to pass with a vote of 60. But also the Senate is split 50 50 right now. Any partisan vote is going to be tied by Madam Vice President Kamala Harris, and that will require Democrats to keep all their members in line for key votes. Democrats are like herding cats on votes. Republicans tend to be better able to fall in line and vote the party line. So Democrats will have the harder work delivering their caucus. But that means any Democratic priority, they won't be able to pick off 10 Republicans. And that's why reconciliation becomes relevant. Reconciliation only requires 51 votes. So they will use reconciliation where they only need 51 votes and only need to pick off one Republican to achieve some of these bigger priorities, like six. So I would flag reconciliation as the pivot to know about. I think that would probably be both overwhelming, intimidating, and exasperating all at once.
0: So so, before I go on to the next question, I I need to ask this. So, you know, based upon maybe the ability to to move things forward, sometimes there are repercussions and these unintended consequences of being able to move things forward because of a majority, especially in this case, it being so close to this, like, 50-50 split right? All decided upon sometimes one vote. Do you see the potential that um, perhaps um, some of these movements or policy shifts, funding shifts, might get more bipartisan support? Or do you expect that we're so locked right now that we're going to be kind of in this split for a long time coming?
1: I think we'll see a split in messaging. I, I think there's enough Republican Senators and House members who are accountable in a more elected democratic, like a representative democracy where they feel accountable to their constituents to vote in the the manner of their constituents as opposed to other members of Congress who do that, but also sometimes feel beholden to play the game of politics. I think we'll see a continued split between messaging and votes or understanding that I can message and I can vote against the bill, but know that it's going to pass. So, my people will get the relief, even though I've advocated against it. Um, I think we'll continue to see that. But at the same time, some of those more junior members or those who aren't playing the political game the same way uh, will continue to vote in the interests of their members. And so you will see some bipartisan efforts. I think the bigger question here is how do these votes, which should be bipartisan, but will become more hyper-partisan because they're using reconciliation, which the circumvents, the traditional Senate vote threshold of 60, that's going to ratchet up the political nature of partisan nature of these votes, even if they would otherwise have bipartisan support. How much does that push the pendulum to the left? And then correcting in the midterms, what does that do to the Senate and the House? And I think that's another thing to keep on uh, your eye on in the horizon. And that then informs that might then inform what the Biden administration and Congress tries to do, the Democratic Congress tries to do in its first two years, because I think in, in a simplified summary, it's often easier to provide programs and reliefs and supports than it is to take them away. Uh, great case in point, the Affordable Care Act. I think Republicans campaigned in on wanting to replace and repeal, and here we are still with it in place. And so I wonder how that will motivate Democrats. Will they want to move some of these things that might rank her out as more partisan, knowing that they'll take the hit in the midterms? because they anticipate that it will be harder for even a Republican Congress to take some of those things away.
0: So the, the, this next question, and um, keep in mind that these questions um, were organized to support, obviously, our members and yours too, but also they were submitted <laughs> sometimes prior to. So the cool thing is mm-hmm. that people knowing you were coming were able to get the questions to ask. So this, you've already answered a little bit of this, but I still think it's a really good question. and. It has to do with the challenge, as you know, superintendents and their teams are um, very, very busy, and they're navigating lots of things, and it's really hard to pay attention to all the things that you're working through kind of on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. So that being the case, how would you prioritize for them? How would you say these are the one, two, three things that I would ask you to most focus on or be prepared for?
1: Absolutely. So the first thing I would do is plus one to your comment, Jeff, about how busy our members are. I think it is the professional collaboration between companies like yours and organizations like AASA. We are focused on serving our members and there's overlap, but together we do more. The other thing I would highlight for the members is it is by virtue of belonging to organizations and associations like this that you have people like me working for you. You know, you see these these movie glorifications of lobbyists that hire guns. I'm a hired gun for education. I'm your hired gun. You should think of me and my staff as an extension of your administrative team. I'm your assistant superintendent for advocacy. So to the extent that you delegate your financial work to your school business official, think of me as your administrative support for advocacy. That's where you contact a Jeff or reach in a Noel well and say, listen, what's what's the latest set of talking points on funding? Can you give me a 10-minute pitch that I can give to my board? How do I message to my community on the maintenance of equity effort? So rely on and take the benefit of the memberships you pay for. And then answering your actual question. See what I did there? Very DC. I answered something else. The two things I would tell you to engage in on right now, the Department of Ed on Tuesday issued its letter providing accountability waivers, but completely missing the mark and not providing assessment waivers. And AASA doesn't oppose assessments, but we think that particularly in light of the pandemic, state and local education agencies are best positioned to know which tests are going to be most efi- effective and efficient in helping inform the instructional decisions that need to be made about assessing where students are, informing learning loss, informing instructional strategies. And I think the hyper-reliance on standardized tests as usual is completely misguided. It, it assumes that you can do 100% of the statewide assessment 100% of the time and in a year that's anything but normal. And I think it also just completely assumes that the definition of assessment is standardized statewide tests. test And I'm a former traditionally certified classroom teacher. And last time I checked, there are these things called formative and summative assessments that can be pretty helpful. And I think it's the state and local education leaders, much more closely located to the students every day, who know which assessments will work. So the first thing you can and should do is raise, holy heck, when your congressional delegation telling them that we just need effective waiver relief. So The Department of Ed has said they'll work with states to provide relief, but they don't want to do a waiver. Well, which is it? Do you want to provide relief or not? Because if you want to provide a relief and you want to be efficient and just do a waiver rather than engaging 50 different conversations with 50 different states. Uh, We saw a version of this under race to the top and Literally, states would submit a element of a proposal that was approved for one state that would be not approved in another. And we can't afford that type of inequity or inequality when it comes to how the federal government is treating assessments. And more to the point, this is about ensuring that when students are back in school in person, schools are best able to maximize instructional time, because you know that on statewide standardized tests, there's so much scheduling allocated to prep and administration. So that's my high horse on assessment. The other thing that I think would be really important right now is with your senators, weigh in with them on where you sit with the COVID funding and and whether or not your school district needs additional dollars, particularly if you have Republican senators, they're going to need all the pressure and cover that's also important here too. Sometimes, Oftentimes the Republican senators and the GOP rep- representatives who might feel party pressure, really all they need is the cover and to say, listen, I've heard from my members and I understand what the party position here is, but the people I represent are telling me they need funding. And by weighing in to tell them what you need, even if you think their answer is no, you give them the cover to professionally move forward and say, I'm going to vote in favor of the funding package. So I would focus on those two things.
0: So, um, I'm going to quote you on that holy heck, I really like that, holy <laughs> heck, right? So, PG, PG, because
1: re- it's during the workday, Jeff.
0: Yeah, raising <laughs> holy heck, uh, this is during the workday. So, um, now, there's a new Secretary of Education, right, which um, brings uh, potentially a new wrinkle, right? Of course, there's politics along the way, of course, that they have to navigate, mm-hmm. but what do you see as possible policy shifts due to that change in the Secretary of Education?
1: Yeah, so actually the Senate was voting just before I started on cloture, which is not the vote on Cardona, but it's the vote to end debate on the vote for Cardona, if that's not super Congressy, uh, His confirmation is expected to go through with bipartisan support. He sailed through committee with bipartisan support. We're super pumped. This is a Department of Ed that stands to be led not only by educators, but career professional educators. Dr. Cardona has experience at the classroom district and state level. He's a former AASA member. Uh, the second in command there is also a political nomination. She's a her most immediate past role was a superintendent of San Diego Unified. Also has classroom experience, and you can't put a price tag, uh, you can't put a value on the benefit of having education policy decisions being implemented and considered and debated, debated through the lens and experience of career educators. And I, I don't think that point could be any more starkly clear than in the light of the the last administration where. Betsy DeVos, was her priority was privatization come heck or high water. So that's the biggest shift there. Um, I think in terms of policy priorities, I'm going to be more interested, not in how they're different from DeVos and Trump, because that's an easy one, I want to know how much of the Biden administration in Cardona is going to be a rinse, wash, repeat of Obama-Duncan. And I think we've already seen some really good indicators of it's not going to be a rinse, wash, repeat, and we're, we're pleased there. So I want to see President Biden's first budget proposal. He's spoken a big game, and we expect him to deliver in at least his budget proposal to prioritize funding in Title I and IDEA. Uh, we don't want to see any competitive funding. We saw President Obama rely on competitive funding race to the top in his uh his COVID was the recession. So in Aura, uh, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, President Obama achieved his priorities through competitive funding. We think that would be inherently inequitable. And we want to see President Biden continue to rely on formula programs. Uh, the other things are the big areas will be some guidance things. So transgender guidance, Title IX, the sexual harassment, discrimination. We've seen them staff up at the Office of Civil Rights, and we expect a more proactive position as it relates to investigations and and data reviews and inquiries. So be prepared for that. And also at the Department of Ed, I think we're going to see, because Betsy DeVos was more consequential Secretary Betsy DeVos was more consequential in the higher ed arena, I think we'll see them trying to undo some of those higher ed things as well.
0: So this next question I'm asking to you, but um, I'm also asking to another person we're interviewing later, but our members were, were very specific. Ask Noel this. So equity, Mm -hmm. politics, and optimism, right? They don't Mm -hmm. always mix. So what advice do you have for our leaders during this most unusual time?
1: So I would say, equity politics and optimism always have to mix and they don't always come out at the same point at the same time. And that's the only way you can get through this. And a great example here is within the reconciliation package that's being debated right now in the House. Uh, They're actually supposed to vote in the House on it tomorrow, the 26th, on Friday. And within the House reconciliation, which is, again, the House version of President Biden's American Recovery Plan, it's a bill that includes $120 billion for education, there's a requirement for a maintenance of equity. That sounds really good, doesn't it? AASA supports equity. We hyper-focus on equity. As designed, AASA is in a position to potentially oppose a provision called maintenance of equity because as drafted, the impact and implementation would be consequential. So the focus here is to really look at, and the intent here is good. The intent is to look at ensuring that federal dollars are used in an equitable manner. But this is an instance of Uh, rinse wash repeat of the Obama effort to codify supplement not supplant which was if you recall back in 2016 they tried to write a regulation around supplement not supplant that would essentially force equalized spending and in the realities of a school district that means honestly forced transfers because that's the biggest portion of your budget and forced transfers we know what that does for recruitment and retention right so when we think about how this plays out First of all, we're optimistic that a technical provision in the Senate side will strip this. But in the meantime, we are gearing up for pushing back on equity, not because we're opposed to equity, but because it's drafted. You would have to move dollars or demonstrate that funding for any school that has a poverty rate above the median is equal to that of anyone below the median, which sounds fair. But then you're treating your district with 51% poverty the same as your districts with 99% poverty. It's not nuanced enough. It's not subtle enough. and if you play out the scenario of how this accountability would look like, what it would look like as districts imp- implemented, ultimately one of the most effective ways to be compliant, because you don't want to risk non-compliance because you lose dollars, it sets up a scenario where the incentive would be to actually centrally locate all of your Title I students. The reverse of integration. You can't be a maintenance and equity element if you result in desegregation or if you result in increased segregation. So we are very, very concerned about that. And this is an example where equity politics and optimism are mixing, because I'm optimistic that we can get the politics and policy around this equity requirement, right? But they don't have the policy construct, right? So I hope that makes sense. And I think it's also important to tee up as you hear some of these headlines or see some of these headlines, that if we go out and we publicly have to oppose this maintenance of equity provision, that headline could be, superintendents oppose equity. Well, hi, clickbait. That's what that is. But in my career, I've been at ASA 13 years. We have opposed a school nutrition bill. Superintendents don't want to feed kids. We have opposed a seatbelt mandate and five point harness on buses. Superintendents oppose school bus safety. No, we don't. We oppose flawed safety, flawed policy that doesn't achieve the stated end in a functional manner. But the headlines get pretty gnarly. So if you see a gnarly headline, let it roll off your back, email me and say, No, well, what's really going on at the federal policy level? And we can let you know. And then we can all remain optimistic about the politics around equity and federal legislation.
0: You just gave me this flashback, Noelle, of the nightmare of trying to describe supplant. Um, You know, I I remember this conversation. And um, so that was, uh, I'm glad to be through that, right? The supplement versus supplant. So um, I will say this. Our members are, are AASA members, and AASA just does an incredible job advocating throughout this country on behalf of school districts, and um, I've always been appreciative, um, I will continue to be appreciative, and your ability to articulate what we need to know as leaders is, um, is, is mind-blowing. I mean, if... You know, you speak very fast and very clearly, and how you remember these points in such a pristine order, it's, um, it's, it's really appreciated. And the fact that you were able to give us time, and I know you're squeezing this in between now and this next meeting, um, is, is really, really appreciated. So know you're valued, uh, not just here, but members throughout the country, and I remember being one of them.
1: Well, I appreciate that. And I try to talk slowly, but then I get excited about it because I like this work. But it's, it's actually just my job to do this, and I'm happy to do it. And I hope that your members and our members know they can always reach out to you and me for any support and advocacy. Thank you for the invitation to be here. It was good to see you, John.
0: By all means, you're very, very good at what you do.